It's episode 758 of the Roadman Cyclone Podcast. Today I want to talk about doping in sport. Let's cue that intro! Welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. My name is Anthony Walsh. Six days a week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you on your journey towards health, happiness, and longevity. Now let's get into the show. This podcast is sponsored by my favorite CBD and wellness brand, NatureCan. NatureCan was founded by the ex-CEO of MyProtein, Andy Duckworth, and NatureCan is now live in over 40 countries worldwide. One of the aspects CBD can really help a cyclist with is anxiety reduction. So you might be thinking, yeah, well, that's great, but I don't struggle with anxiety, which is fair. But do you ever struggle with motivation? Because we know that motivation and anxiety are linked in that they both influence behavior and emotional regulation. Since I started using NatureCan CBD, that voice in my head, you know, the little voice that challenges your decision as to whether you should go training or not. Well, that voice has been totally quietened. Head on over to naturecan.com today to check out their full range of CBD and wellness products. That's naturecan.com. Roadman, welcome back. In today's episode, I want to dig into doping in sport. I bumped into a neighbor the other day and I got that all too familiar question. If you ride your bike at all, I'm sure you've encountered this at some point in your life because almost any time... I talk to a layperson and they hear I host a cycling podcast. One of the first questions I still get is, are they still doping? Do you get that question? How annoying is that question? It's unbelievable. So today I want to take a little look at doping and what motivates some athletes to cross the line. This is a topic that's always fascinated me. After my degree, my master's, actually centered around doping and whether the world anti-doping code was in violation with natural law rights. Sounds super, super boring, but honestly, it wasn't the worst thesis topic in the world and I really enjoyed it. And it probably in some weird way set me on the path to where I am now. Doping isn't a new phenomenon. It's been present for decades. In fact, the use of performance-enhancing substances, that can be traced all the way back to ancient times. Gladiators used to dope. Ancient Greek athletes were also known to consume various substances like mushrooms and herbs to enhance their performance. Even in 1904, Thomas Hicks, he was an American marathon runner, and he was found to have ingested a mixture of strychnine and brandy. That sounds like a really heavy Saturday night concoction. He was taking the strychnine and brandy mix during the race to enhance his performance. But when we think about modern doping, that's kind of mid 20th century and that's marked with the advent of synthetic drugs and really an advancement that we had broadly in medical science around then. Anabolic steroids gained mainstream popularity with athletes because they had this ability to enhance muscle growth and strength. The use of steroids became widespread, particularly in strength and power based sports like weightlifting or athletics. Now, when depending on who you talk to, the exact date of this modern era, when this modern era hits cycling, it's a little bit fuzzy. But I believe 
it was around the time Greg LeMond got shot. And that was 1987. Greg was pretty unstoppable before his accident. And he's noted as saying that when he came back from the hunting accident, when he got back into race shape, he said the peloton was just at a totally different speed. And this is corroborated by a bunch of different uh, accounts from around that time. So I think it was around 87, 88. This era is characterized and now I suppose best known for the emergence of sophisticated doping programs within teams and the prevalence of performance enhancing drugs that were kind of second gen like erythropoietin EPO it's the one that changed everything blood transfusions and human growth hormone also came in around then but the Lance Armstrong documentary which is on ESPN he talks about one of his first encounters with Dr. McKaylee Ferrari at the time and Lance went to him and he was a little bit worried about what concoctions he should be taking and Ferrari simplified it all for him. I mentioned uh, human growth hormone and various other substances there and Ferrari said, all you need are the red cells. All you need is EPO. That's all you need to win bike races. So an event that really stands out if you look at the the chronology of doping in cycling and it stands out for all the wrong reasons obviously it's the 1998 Tour de France coincidentally it started in Dublin and I was there if you're looking at pictures a curly haired little child sitting on my father's shoulders now that year the Festina cycling team this is how laissez-faire it was at the time they were caught with huge quantities of doping substances like a swaneur just casually driving his car across the border with piles of illegal substances in the back of the car no attempt to smuggle or conceal it. The car was searched and this led to the expulsion of Team Festina from the race. The scandal exposed the extent of doping in professional cycling and it triggered a series of investigations across the sport that revealed the systematic doping practices in a bunch of teams. Now back to my neighbour's question. Why do we cheat? Are cyclists still at it? And why cycling more than any other sport seems to be embroiled in this? I think about that question quite a bit and I'm just hypothesizing I haven't seen data on this as to why cycling more than other sports and I think about what determines a winner in a sport so my predominant backgrounds are cycling and soccer so I'm going to use those two to to contrast this so what makes a winner in cycling it's a combination of fitness and skill but what percentage fitness and what percentage skill well, it's predominantly fitness. You know, we've seen this uh, sort of trend towards Zwift riders coming across who have these huge engines, not necessarily the best bike handling in the world. You can get the bike handling part. It does come up to speed. I don't know the exact percentage, but I'm going to say it's 90% fitness, 10% skill. You know, we can slightly debate about that, but it's not 90% skill, 10% fitness. It's in that 90% fitness or maybe an old school Pareto 80-20, 80 fitness, 20% skill. But if you look at something like soccer, that's using the expression, not football for our international listeners out in the US. If you think about something like soccer, what's that percentage split between fitness and skill? I would say it's almost 50-50 because there's no benefit to being a fit player without having a commensurate amount of skill. Like if you take that cycling division of 90-10, like a player who's 90% fit and 10% skill, he's never going to rise through the leagues to a sufficient level. So 
And even you think about when my era, footballers, Matt Letizia, Jan Mulby, Paul McGrath, these weren't athletes, Maradona, these weren't athletes in the sense that Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi are athletes. They got by largely on skill. Then it was like 90% skill, 10% fitness. Paul Gascoigne, another very prominent example. So I would say it's 50-50 in that. So the incentive to dope, something that manipulates the fitness variable, it's higher in a sport like cycling than it is in a skill-based sport like soccer, tennis, golf. There's doping in other sports for sure, 100%. I'm not saying these sports are clean. But the risk to dope as an athlete it yields a higher payoff in sports where fitness is the dominant variable that determines the outcome. The risk to reward ratio just makes more sense. The reason everybody dopes, it's slightly unique to them, but some of the most common reasons are the pursuit of a competitive advantage remains a significant reason, like the desire to outperform an opponent and achieve success. Doping is seen as a shortcut to gain an edge, providing enhanced strength, endurance, speed, recovery, and that's going to greatly enhance your chances of winning a bike race. Also, financial incentives are absolutely huge. You need to look at the cultural context from which some riders come, especially South American riders are coming into cycling from villages that aren't very affluent. So financial incentives play a significant role. Success in professional sports brings substantial rewards. We're looking at prize money, endorsements, sponsorship, appearance fee. The potential financial gains associated with winning can be a strong motivation for athletes to take that risk. Another contributing factor is the normalization and peer pressure within certain cultures. Athletes may feel like compelled to conform or engage in a doping practice to fit in, gain acceptance and avoid being left on the sidelines by their peers. This can create a cycle where the normalization of doping perpetuates its prevalence within a specific sport or team and we've seen this during the dark years in cycling you know take the gear and you're on the a team and you're with the cool kids don't take the gear and you're gonna ride a b race like a b schedule and you're not gonna hang out with the cool kids that division was very very obvious in the darker years in cycling Lastly, some athletes may be lured into doping by the belief that they can escape detection through sophisticated techniques or loopholes in the anti-doping regulations. This false sense of security can make doping seem like a viable option despite the potential consequences. For me, when I look at any decision you make, you look at what is the risk. So if I get caught, it's a four-year penalty for doping. What is the reward if I don't get caught? Well, it's potentially multi-million euro contracts. And what's the statistical chance of me getting caught? And then you run those things through the equation. But when you manipulate one variable, which we're starting to do more and more now, like we're manipulating the variable of how much you can earn. So now you're making more and more cash. The penalty is staying the same. And the chances of you getting caught are remaining fixed. I would argue this is maybe changing the equation. So we need to look at changing that four-year penalty to maybe an eight-year penalty. That's maybe a conversation for another day. But I think four-year penalty or a four-year training and holiday isn't a sufficient enough deterrent for a lot of athletes given the potential upside the next 10 years will be very very interesting as testers scramble to stay ahead of the curve and cheating athletes innovate and iterate their malpractice to gain an advantage some amazingly sophisticated and interesting technologies are emerging which is going to see the landscape totally changing 
if you think about genetic manipulation as the first one I'm really interested in. If you have a chance, check out CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R. CRISPR allows for precise editing of genes, enabling the modification of specific genetic sequences to potentially enhance traits such as muscle growth, endurance, recovery. By manipulating genes, athletes could theoretically enhance their physical attributes beyond what's naturally achievable. For example, they could increase muscle mass or strength or boost the production of oxygen-carrying red blood cells or alter metabolic processes to improve energy utilization. I've no doubt this is already going on in China because it's been documented. Detecting gene doping is going to be so, so difficult for anti-doping organizations in USADA because traditional testing methods won't work. Urine and blood testing, they're not going to be sufficient to identify genetic modifications. Research is ongoing to develop innovative ways to detect gene doping, such as gene expression profiling, analysis of epigenetic modifications, or identifying specific genetic markers associated with doping. Another interesting area to keep an eye on over the next 10 years is peptide and hormone manipulation. The misuse of peptides and hormones, including stuff like growth factors and hormone-releasing substances, is happening a little already, but there's some big things coming down the pipeline on this. And the last one, which it's an area I'm totally fascinated, not specifically around doping, but it's an area everyone should have a little bit of an eye on at the moment, artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is changing the game in absolutely everything. And AI could potentially play a huge role in doping. We could see a situation where artificial intelligence is optimizing doping regimes and designing personalized strategies to avoid detection. The challenges for the upcoming decade are some of the most sophisticated that clean sport has ever faced and it's going to be an interesting one to watch as this battle unfolds roadman thanks for tuning in i'm back again tomorrow with another amazing interview until then please do ride safe out there and i'll chat to you then